If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The Starter Edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. From our respective bunkers in the COVID-19 crisis of 2020. Yeah, but I managed to have both daughters move out this year. So we are officially empty nesting. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a blessing and a curse, isn't it? It's a thing. Yeah. It's definitely a thing. So it is, it is what it is. It was long overdue, I think. And, uh, we're better off for where we are, but it's uh, still a hell of a thing. Yeah. Help them move. Right. From one place to another. You know, it's, it's funny that, uh, that theme plays well into my better know a framework gadget thing today from one place to another. Well, play that funky music. All right. Here we go. All right, dude, what do you got? ARCopyPaste.app. It's called oh. ClipDrop. And it, it does something that I actually had this idea and was discussing with Kent Alstad on a bus in Amsterdam years ago. Back in the day, yeah. But consider an app where you take a picture of something, okay? It knocks out whatever it is in the picture. So it's, you know, got a transparent background. And then you move your phone over to your laptop and you push a button and the picture appears in Photoshop, Illustrator, whatever, InDesign, Paint, whatever. It's insanely cool. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting to think about. I mean, the funny part is you and I know that moving a chunk of data between devices with that metaphor is not that hard. No. Honestly, it's the perimeter cutting that's blowing my mind. Yeah, right, right. right. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, but I don't know that it actually works, right? This is still prototype. Yes, that it is. Yeah. But it's still very cool. Yeah, and, you know, the the fact that, you know, once and, – and my thought about this 10 years ago or whatever it was, was that the fact that you have a cloud and you can have multiple machines connected to that same account – I mean, SignalR, right? Whatever. Right. You can send things – from point A to point B, as long as you're authenticated through that cloud connection. And sure. this is just like putting the, you know, souping it up and making it really sexy. Well, yeah, this is, I get, I'm presuming they're using the phone to recognize your, what computer you're pointing at, be able to figure out the account and shift it over there. But yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. It's like, I would love a clipboard that simply exists in the cloud. Yep. And, uh, and, and I actually would almost be fascinated to see what shows up in my clipboard over the course of a day. Right. Right. And it's cool. interesting that, um, one of, uh, our friends, uh, one of Joel's and my friends, Scott Routley in the, uh, app V next Slack blew us all away with this, uh, this week. Nice. Yeah. So kind of appropriate. So that's cool. that's what I got. Who's talking to us today, Richard? 
grabbed a comment off the show 1705, which we did with one Zoiner Tejada, which I think you've heard of once or twice. Yeah. We were talking a bit about machine learning. Got a lot of good tweets on that show, too. People really liked it. Uh, this comment's a little long, but it's also awesome. It's from uh, Saimashi. He said, thank you for posting such an insightful discussion about machine learning in business and society and the potential that the, the cloud offers for machine learning development. I am new to the field in general, so I thought I'd post some insights that I pulled from the show. Uh, having worked with off-the-shelf deep learning APIs in the past, like cognitive services, I thought you made a good point of why these are not always applicable to certain problems. You mentioned the data used to train these packages may be too general to solve some problems. Hmm. Uh, next, relational database theories dictates that database designers must have certain considerations in mind to avoid data duplication, the three normal forms, although I think that's a very obsolete concept these days. Yeah. We really did that not to avoid data, to avoid data duplication to save disk space because once upon a time, that was important. It was. Uh, it isn't anymore. As data lakes become more popular to train cloud data AI models, data duplication is permissible and sometimes encouraged and since that cloud scale storage is much cheaper than compute Data duplication may reduce query compute time. Well, certainly will reduce time. Just also introduce inaccuracies. And it's, I guess storage is cheaper than compute, but they're both pretty cheap. And finally, the walkthrough with sentiment analysis example was very insightful. I loved how you discussed that classifier model thresholds might be set as business decisions, which is, you know, the funny truth, Sai, is that it's always been business decisions that developers often made in software right and when and often sometimes they were close enough sometimes they weren't sometimes they did serious issues whether we brought those up to business decision makers that's a separate issue yeah something you should do but uh, uh certainly a compelling point it's just i feel like ai tech in general has brought a lot of these long-running concerns about software development as a profession to the forefront. Yes. The ethics side, the work impact side, all these things I think have just become more relevant. So, Sai, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. Uh, he's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us a tweet. Zappity zap zap. Okay. Zap. <laughs> I got, well, I got nothing. Right. I'm really excited to okay. talk to uh, Joel and Kyle here. So let me introduce them. Joel Hewlin has more than 26 years of experience in the IT field, gaining expertise in a variety of disciplines, ranging from systems engineering to cloud-based computing and everything in between. He's focused on software development for over 20 years, developing and architecting software solutions for many platforms, from single-user devices to large-scale enterprise applications and services. His experience draws from supporting and enriching the software profile of financial service companies to the Department of Defense, NASA, as well as a range of businesses from small to large. Today, Joel is an international speaker focusing on such topics as cloud architecture, serverless, data engineering, and AI. He also creates and delivers training on these topics to Microsoft employees and partners. Kyle Bunting has more than 20 years of experience also in the software industry, and he's worked as a software developer and architect, a director of software engineering, managing a team of 25 developers, and a startup CEO. Over the last several years, Kyle transitioned from being a developer to working as a consultant, uh, focusing primarily on data and machine learning engineering. In this role, he's involved in building sophisticated, resilient data pipelines for advanced analytics and big data solutions. 
And uh, there's more to these bios, so you want to check them out at .netrocks.com, which was built by Joel Healan. So, <laughs> welcome, Joel. Welcome, Kyle. Well, thank you very much for having us. Thank you. You're welcome, Joel. Yep, excited to be here. It's about Good time. to talk to you guys. And uh, I know, no kidding, <laughs> right? Joel and I are currently working on a project together, which is a whole lot of fun. It's a blazer yep. project. Yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah. A real blazer project. I know. So, they do exist. They do exist, yeah. Now, are you allowed to go into production with Blazor? Is oh, it sure. actually licensed now? Yeah. Okay. And Blazor server is what we're writing it in. And that's been in .NET Core 3 since, what, last year, right? It's been in the box. Yeah. And um, uh, .NET 5 is obviously adding some new things, mostly to WebAssembly, but, um, but some new things to the component model as well that are very useful. So... We're, we're looking forward to it, and, uh, and our customer is great, and he also is a fan of .NET Rocks and of Blazor Train, and he's learning a lot about Blazor in the process and, and is sort of helping us get through the models and how everything should work. So, it's, it's a great team. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about uh, Azure AI and data science with you guys who have been doing a lot of that stuff. And uh, I know this is more of, of sort of Richard's milieu. I haven't really done a whole lot in this in this field, but it's uh, certainly fascinating to me. And uh, I, I'm always getting asked by, you know, people about, uh, you know, privacy invasions and all of these kinds of things and AI sort of taking over the world. And there certainly is a lot of mythos built up about it. And uh, I don't know. How do you – how do you – uh, respond to those kinds of conversations, you know, like your uncle, uncle Bob from uh, at Thanksgiving or whatever is saying, yeah, I don't know about this AI stuff. It's going to, you know, creeps me out a little bit. Yeah. I, I think that oftentimes some of these types of observations are grounded in a little bit of truth. A lot of it is grounded in mythology. <laughs> you know, you could look back at yeah. different movies. I mean, the earliest I can remember uh, really getting into robots taking over is the Terminator series. Um, and then more yeah. recently, you know, with self-driving cars and things like that, you see more and more capabilities and decisions that are made and ethical questions that come up like, okay, well, if a self-driving car is about to run over a person, but to avoid them, they need to run over a group of people, you know, which one does it yeah. select? And so <laughs> the trolley car, the trolley car. Yeah, problem. exactly. The trolley car pr yeah. type of problem. And, you know, then you have people like Elon Musk who are very prominent in this field, um, who are voicing their concerns about how there could be this runaway super intelligence, you know, once it, right. and, and you could sort of see that happening in some ways, right? Like, when you're talking about machine learning, it is machines that are uh, either you're training the machine learning model or you sometimes have cases where they kind of ch train themselves. And if you look at uh, the ability for programmable hardware, you know, through field programmable gate arrays and things like that, you could sort of see a future in which 
you have machine learning models that can become smarter and smarter and reprogram the hardware and gain more capabilities and things like that. So, you know, I, I think that it more comes down to looking at what's real and what's not real. You know, reality today is by and large, there's nothing that really indicates a takeover of machines. Um, but, yeah. you know, I, I think that if you were to ignore the types of moral dilemmas and and things that could potentially cause problems in the future, then that would be a wrong approach too. you know, not looking at potential dangers there. And there are definitely uh, organizations that are that exist now who do just that, you know, look at the ethical uh, parts of machine learning and, and things that can uh, cause problems. Well, there have been problems in the past. Um, I'm thinking of certain um, stock market trading algorithms gone awry. Ultimately, it comes down to bad programmers. <laughs> but uh, there's so many variables that they, they could do things so fast in terms of trading that you, you, you had this sort of meltdown scenario. Uh, happen and Richard, you guys, you probably, you guys probably know more about it than I do, but I specifically remember some sort of, you know, uh, some sort of meltdown in the stock market that was caused by algorithms just responding to data. Yeah, that was the um, what was it called? It was the night crash, and it was a, a bug in an algorithm that caused it. it. It didn't actually crash the whole market, but it destroyed a company. Yeah, the 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 reality, you know, the the way I've been describing this. And I was asked to to do that sort of perils and promise of AI talk many years ago now. So I said, don't worry about computers taking control. Worry about people using computers to control things. Yeah. Because the these AI tools are still just tools and they will amplify things. And long before we figure out how to make a sentient computer, we'll have already destroyed each other with them. <laughs> right. So you know, saw and if you and, and interestingly, if you solve that problem, you've probably solved the sentient computer problem too. Hmm. So it, uh, but yeah, it, you know, in the end, these are just different kinds of automation and you can make automation that makes mistakes and it will destroy things. Or you create a bot on Twitter that becomes um, a racist within a day, actually a within hours. monster, yes. <laughs> yeah, hours. Yeah. Poor Tay. And again, you know, it's funny you even say it that way, Joel, because you just anthropomorphized <laughs> a piece of software. You're right. Right? Like... Tay is not a person. It was a set of algorithms that reflected the data that was fed to it. But when humans anthropomorphize, right? We see faces in trees and toast for crying out loud. It's hey, not. I only did that once. It's a weakness of humans. <laughs> you still bring it up, Campbell, after all these years. Well, and I think an important point to make with all of this is really that the technology is, at a, is evolving at a pace that's, that's far outseeding our ability to look at the ethical implications of this and actually legislate some of this. So when you look at the stock market and these types of things, right, companies are obviously leaning forward, trying to figure out how to make the most out of what they can to profit. Uh, and so when we see these automated algorithms that are trading, uh, oftentimes trading massive amounts of shares at a time, 
we still don't have legislation that can keep up with that. Um, well, you know, the funny thing is I would disagree with you there, Kyle. We do. The fact that these guys run software that essentially does something called front running, where they're actually able to trade ahead of the real trade was something that was made illegal years ago when buyers on the stock market, when you actually physically ran them, would buy the stock and resell it before selling it to the person who requested it. It was illegal then. It should be illegal now. It's just a digital version of the same thing. Mm. The fact that they permit it because it makes the market money is really a problem. Sure. I, I would but also push back on this, you know, legislation can't keep up. You can't make a driver's license before you've made a car, right? You kind of need to let the thing get a bit out of control and become a problem before you can even rationally talk through what legislation looks like. You know, it's only when cars were killing people that were like, huh, you know what? Traffic lights might be a good idea. Seatbelts. Licenses might be a good idea. You'd like to stop before them. But, you know, we've always had this ethics problem with data. The only difference now is that we've made tools to make it super easy to do stupid things with data. And so it's becoming a crisis. Yeah, but I also think you have to look at the pace of change, right? I mean, uh, the technology world changes so rapidly, uh, you know, even a comparison to cars. Yes, it was a big jump from horses and, you know, horse-drawn carts, but uh, there were incremental increases in the speed that we were doing and other things like that, where I think with the pace of technology, things change so quickly that it is very difficult for legislators to keep a full understanding of what's actually going on. I mean, you can see that you just watch the hearings of uh, Jeff Bezos and, and Mark Zuckerberg and some of these technology company CEOs that go up here before Congress. Congress doesn't even know the right questions to ask. <laughs> yeah, I do think they're we're living in a bubble of highly accelerated technology and that for the most part, legislators don't live in that bubble. And so as do most people. Right. And so, of course, they have a tough time with it, but they're also seeing it very differently than we do. Yeah, I would say, too, that machine learning, in a way, AI, the general umbrella term, is a force multiplier. And it could be a force multiplier's stupidity, as you say. Like, for instance, ever right. since I discovered mm-hmm. I could write some code in Notepad, I use Notepad to make stupid decisions with data. And the fact that you can accelerate <laughs> that by training a machine to make stupid decisions, you know, means that it is kind yeah. of a force yeah. multiplier. You know, you have uh, some level of control over how you go about uh, training a model, for instance, to do certain things. And then what yeah. do you actually do with that model? What decisions are you making? Right. And and not you know, the other part of this, besides anthropomorphizing, you know, giving them names and genders and things, is this somehow... It, data is more credible coming from a machine than from a person when all that machine is is a consolidation of people anyway like that that again goes really concerning that uh, you know you and you see this all the time with folks saying things like well the computer says so it must be true it's like eh, not any more true <laughs> yeah and i think that's a, a very important point right we have to keep in in mind that uh, all of these models, all of these algorithms are developed by people uh, and they can have bias, they can have mistakes. Uh, so as, as we look at some of these things that are driven by uh, machine learning, you know, some of these modeling and other things that we do to make decisions, 
can be flawed. I like going to the uh, uh, grocery store. I was in the grocery store just the other day and I got to the checkout and I put everything in the bag and put it, put your card in the slot. Nothing happens. And the lady comes over and, you know, she goes, oh, this damn thing hasn't been working all day. And I said, I blame the programmers. And she said, yeah, me too. And I'm there with my daughter and she's laughing at me, you know, so like, stupid programmers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> The machines, we know the machine is stupid, but it's only as stupid as the programmer who programmed it. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. And it's only as smart as the programmer that programmed Yeah, it. so that means that we really need to have the smartest of the smarties working on these algorithms so that we don't have things like what happened in the stock market. Don't write bugs. Yeah, I think I think it's more important to have more eyes. Yeah. That... You know, yeah, that person's 20% smarter than all of us, but three of us together will outsmart them each time. Yeah. You know, it's the compensating of bias and, and the different sets of eyes. You know, the number of times I've talked to the rubber duck and the rubber duck came up with the answer just because I talked things through. <laughs> you know, that, that point that the, the biggest issue I ever had with software is writing it alone. Right. I bounce things off Kelly, you know, and she just sits there and nods her heads and goes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. It's cool. I was like, and it helps. She doesn't have to, she doesn't understand any of it, but occasionally she'll get a reference. But uh, yeah. So I guess we should talk about Azure AI. There's uh, quite a lot there. Every time I turn around, there's some new new stuff going on, new terms to think of: knowledge mining, uh, cognitive search. A lot of stuff to unpack here. Yeah. Yeah, there really is. The way we usually look at it is this. You know, when you're looking at, well, first, let's get some terms out of the way. You know, I think everyone here understands AI in general. Being, it's an umbrella mm -hmm. term. It covers machine learning and deep learning. Um, and so there is this spectrum uh, when we look at how do you do... AI in Azure. And so if you think of a line that goes from left to right, on the left-hand side is what are considered pre-built models. So these are the things that are provided to you through Azure uh, Cognitive Services. Right. And so these are ones that are constantly being trained and retrained because once you train a model, that's usually not good enough. You need to periodically retrain it with new information to improve it. And it could be things like um, working with text, working with pictures and sounds and different things like that uh, to uh, identify things and, and right. uh, be able to classify things, for instance. And these things, as a developer, they're real simple to use. You can either use uh, a straight REST API endpoint or you can use SDKs. You send a little bit of data, you get back a response in JSON format. And you go on your way. But there's this other end, the right-hand side, where it's all the custom-built stuff. This is where you train your own models. You're using your own data to train it. Yeah. You have to do things like um, uh, feature selection uh, to figure out, well, what columns or fields do I actually train my model with? You have to select your own algorithms for training, then you have to 
do the training and testing to see, well, how well is my model performing? But in the middle right. is this sort of uh, cross between a pre-trained model and custom data. So for instance, there's something like the cognitive services custom vision, where it's a pre-trained model, but you train it with your own data. Like for instance, I trained it one time to identify different types of shoes, you know, like different brands of shoes. And I because it knows what shoes are, but it might know what might not know a New Balance shoe from a Nike shoe or well, something. It it can detect objects in a picture, and so you can yeah. you do what's called labeling, where you upload a bunch of images of you know these are Yeezys. You know my my youngest son is into Yeezys for some reason, and so. They're very expensive and has they're he, very, you know, popular type of shoes. Has he seen a doctor for that? <laughs> Not yet. <you> know. <laughs> Isn't there a cream for that? Doctors are still trying to figure out what in the world uh, the problem is. There's an ointment, I think. <laughs> well, in the far reaches of ancient lands, you can find such ointments. Oh, man, I got Yeezys again. <laughs> <laughs> but say you take your Yeezys, me. <laughs> you take your pictures of your Yeezys <laughs> and you upload it and you say this, uh, this, this is a Yeezy, uh, you know, model A, this is a model B, whatever Yeezy. And so that's right. called labeling. And so the custom vision model learns to recognize the objects and patterns within the images. You label it to train it. Okay. This is uh, yeah. model A. This is model B. If I see similar pictures, I can reasonably identify it. And you, the more data you use to train it, the better outcomes you'll have. And that's sort of the middle of the spectrum. Right. And that makes sense, though, because it, the, the model is already trained on general yes, items. Yes, that's the, the key right. there. Exactly. Yeah. So, you don't want to have to train it on, you know, a shoe versus a sock versus pants, whatever. Like, you can figure all that out, but getting specific. So, I remember our friend uh, Jay Stulo, another app Nexter, he wrote a, a HoloLens app called What Dat. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> you just look at something and go, what that? <laughs> Do you have to say it like what that it for it to work? Yeah, I oh, think wow. so. I think so, yeah. <laughs> now, what does that? it respond in the same well, kind of way? That's embarrassing. Well, that's obviously I, I think so. a bad case of the Yeedy. <laughs> the Yeezy. <laughs> <laughs> that be the Yeezys. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to kind of carry on with what Joel was talking about. Um, you know, so we have these different classifications of, of machine learning models that are available for us to use. And you know, as developers, so Joel and I both kind of within our background have made the transition from being developers over to working more in the data and AI realm. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of times those pre-built models, Azure Cognitive Services and, and similar types of services out there are where we're going to start, right? That's going to be our first introduction into how to interact with these models. And they have APIs available for them. Uh, in some cases, there's SDKs that are available to allow us to work with those. Mm. So it does give you a kind of a gentle introduction into the world of machine learning and AI. Mm. Um, and then obviously, we, we 
you know, depending on the requirements that you're working against, uh, very frequently uh, you're going to find that you, you end up having to go into that custom AI world where, where you do start involving data scientists that can actually make decisions about what algorithms are we going to use uh, based on the problem that we're trying to solve, the types of insights that we're trying to gain from the data. Um, and you, you had mentioned cognitive search uh, and knowledge mining. Uh, and those are tools that really kind of play into that, right? So Azure Cognitive Search uh, is basically Azure Search rebranded. Um, but what they did with that is they've actually incorporated uh, built-in knowledge mining. And what knowledge mining is, is really uh, the ability to use artificial intelligence to extract additional data um, out of the information that you already have. Um, and you can do that through uh, the various cognitive services that are available out there. But you also have the option of building what they call skills uh, using your own custom AI. Uh, so, you know, if you're an organization that has very specialized financial types of data or you're uh, working in insurance where you maybe have a, you know, dictionaries of terms that aren't going to be common to what you see in the real world, you can now start to build these things into uh, your search uh, platform so that when you do a search for these things, it's actually capable of extracting that type of information and gaining insights from that. Wow. Yeah. I did a show on Run As Radio uh, uh, back in June with one Seth Juarez. Yes. You all have heard yep. of him, of course. And I, the, sh the name of the show is Getting Value from Unstructured Data, but it actually, it was really a conversation about cognitive search, just its ability to find useful context in pretty much any file format you aimed it at. So, you know, the idea that you could index Word documents and Excel spreadsheets and uh, all these different kinds of files and all different kinds of images so that everything sort of was a searchable at that yeah. point. And that they, you know, companies have all these search tools around data, databases more right. than they really have around the reams of files of documents and things that are just sitting there. Yeah, and I think that's a, a key point, right? With with knowledge mining and cognitive search, uh, we really start to be able to get into our unstructured data, uh, you know, opaque files that aren't uh, inherently searchable. We can start to take our images and actually use AI to extract context around those and create metadata uh, where we don't have that already. Uh, so, you know, we can look at an image and do OCR. We can extract text. Uh, mm -hmm. We've even got models uh, within Azure that, uh, you know, with, with computer vision or even custom vision, if you went down that road, that allow us to actually look at an image, um, do facial recognition. Uh, in a lot of cases, there's a, a huge library of celebrities. Uh, we also have landmarks in different places. Uh, so we can actually look at those images and get information out of them, Where whereas a normal uh, search all we'd maybe get back is the name of the file and the size of the file and, a, and an extension or something. And guys, hold that thought while we pause for this very important message. Hey, Carl here with a very special offer for music to code by. You can now get the whole 20 track collection for $19.99 while electrons last. Go to my new store at pwop.e-junkie.com. That's P-W-O-P dot e dash junkie dot com and get it now before i change my mind all right we're back it's dot net rocks i'm carl franklin that's richard campbell that's joel Hewlin, and that who was just talking was kyle bunting and we're talking about azure ai and uh, data science and my question to you kyle is do you think that we're headed towards the day where uh, database indexing is no longer necessary? Uh, I think we're still pretty far out from that. 
Uh, I mean, we still do see, you know, there's relational databases are still very heavily used. Um, and, you know, so we still have to deal with the normalization in those databases and how we can best extract that from a, in a performance perspective uh, from those databases. I do think, you know, as we see a lot more shift towards unstructured data uh, or even semi-structured data, so we get into MongoDB, Cosmos DB, these types of NoSQL databases, we're starting to see some of that normalization go away. Uh, and we've talked to, I think you mentioned that a little bit briefly earlier, uh, we don't necessarily need to follow those separation of data concerns anymore because storage is so cheap. Uh, and in a lot of cases, even the compute aspect of that is cheap. So, But right now, I still think, I mean, if you look at uh, Azure Synapse Analytics on uh, the platform that they're building out with that, um, there still is a pretty heavy focus on indexing of some of the data that's there, uh, column store indexes, and how to properly use those indexes. Mm. To Although you're getting smarter and smarter machine learning tools out there to help you tune your indexes in the first place. Like the number of recommendations I get from Azure SQL these days on how to run my database be better. Like clearly they're using their own tools on our databases to help us, you know, optimize. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and I think we've seen huge improvements there. Uh, I think that that will continue to improve. But ultimately, you know, in answer to the question, right, those are still building an index for you. Right? I mean, the recommendations yeah. you see from that is mm -hmm. you should have this index on this table. Uh, so, so we are not necessarily at a place where we're ready to start moving away from needing indexes. Well, about what about uh, indexers? Essentially, not have to know as much about. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. That? So we're maybe moving towards not needing DBAs that have uh, indexing expertise, because exactly. Yeah. You know, I do think that we are starting to see that, and even even if you look at the platform as a service offerings in Azure, so Azure SQL Database, SQL Managed Instance, uh, we are starting to, to take some of those traditional DBA activities and those are starting to go away um, and there's always going to be cases where people want to run their sql server on a, on a vm in azure and stick with an is platform because they want tighter control of all of that but definitely the options are there and as we see uh, better and better security around these uh, paths offerings i think we'll see more and more organizations start to shift away from trying to manage their own databases and just using the, the database as a service yeah, and, and that's not the value prop in the first place, right? Your real job as a DBA is to be a steward and shepherd of data. Make sure you're collecting all of the data, you're storing it reliably, you're protecting it, and you're sharing it as as is appropriate. The, the, the actual product's kind of secondary to the point to that overarching job. Yeah, and I would say that, you know, the, the, the role of the DBA seems to uh, be less and less emphasize these days. And really, those types of aspects kind of fall under the role of the data engineer. And if you look at a data engineer, you know, it, uh, traditionally with a, with a DBA, this is the person who, if they have ultimate control within their organization, they're the only ones who are allowed to create new tables and views and things like that. And developers have to ask them for permission. They make sure that database uh, backups are happening and it can successfully restore and things like that. But mm. as we move into this reality of mixed data where we have you know, I, I, a statistic out there says that 90% of new data that's being generated today is all unstructured. And if you think about mm -hmm. things like cell phones and Twitter and other ways in which we generate a lot of data, IoT devices 
is another example. Mm. You could see why. And so it is the job of a data engineer typically these days, which to me, that is a good mix of someone who is a developer, but also knows their data. You know, this is why Mm. I've kind of moved more into this role as has Kyle, because it's a natural progression. You want to work with a lot of data. You're you're interested in big data problems. You're interested in how do you process this information? How do you use it for analytical workloads, for machine learning and things like that? Well, the data engineer is the person who's now responsible for connecting to all of these data sources that could be external or internal, um, combine them all, create data pipelines to move the data in, do transformations, mm-hmm. store them somewhere, store it multiple places. You know, back to the conversation about storage is cheap. This is why more and more in a modern data warehouse, you store all of your data in a data lake. You store different levels of transformed data in your data lake, and then you store data in some sort of uh, database system. You know, it could be Synapse Analytics, it could be Azure SQL, it could be any number of things uh, to serve it. And so the data engineer is really responsible for that whole life cycle. And it's, it, it is a more interesting type of role, I think, than a DBA role has ever has been at any point. Yeah, yeah. Very, very, very interesting times. Uh, and it's and it's all you know. The, the joke we always say on on Ron as Radio is you're never going to get to the bottom of your list. <laughs> no. You never have. You never will. Like nobody's losing their jobs here. Their jobs yes. are evolving. Right. The demand for folks that take data seriously, that understand the domain space of the data, because it's its own mindset. Like that focus alone is very different from a developer's mindset. And you only make good products when both those people work together to really understand what's available in the data and how to store it and retrieve it effectively, as well as building the features and, and getting value from it. But most devs that I work with are, they care about putting the data into the system, however you want it in, and being able to get it back out to show you what you want. And, that, and that's sort of where it stops. The overall stewardship of data is a different thing. Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, I think, you know, in my experience, that's as a developer, that's kind of what it was too, right? And, and I think Joel and I both have a similar background that we were a lot of times the only developer uh, or one of a handful of developers. So we had the opportunity to not only design the databases, but the systems around them. Uh, so we really did get to understand that better. Um, but ultimately, that leads into how do you use that data? Uh, and a conversation I've had with a lot of organizations that I've worked in over the years is that one of their most valuable assets is that data and they're doing nothing with it. That's, you know, they collect all this mm-hmm. information about their customers, about their products, about the way the business operates, and they leave that in a database somewhere and never do anything with it. You know, as a data engineer, our job is to Go get that data, uh, pull data in from all the various sources, regardless of the format that, it, that the data uh, resides in, and start to use that data to actually gain insights in that. And whether that's through custom machine learning models, whether it's by using Azure Cognitive Search and knowledge mining to extract that data and make that searchable so that they can actually get at that, it really all comes down to how can we use the information that's being collected over the years to gain insights to help drive the business forward and improve profitability uh, or gain insights into you know how to cure cancer or whatever that might look like. Yeah, and, and turn that whole block of stuff into a, a real profit center. Like that's more customers, that's more value per customer 
Like there's money to be made there for the whole organization, for those who can get to work on that data in a useful way. Exactly. I mean, and that's why I think if you look at Google and Facebook and, and organizations like that, that's why they are so profitable because mm-hmm. that's exactly what they do is is they really are nothing but data companies. Yeah. And, but Danny, once again, we get back to the beginning of this conversation, which is now there's the ethics around that. What Absolutely. are we allowed to do this data? What's appropriate? What do our customers expect? They want a I coffee hot on time. Yeah. They don't want to wait in line. I I had a period there where some piece of software decided that there was a baby in this house and kept shipping us stuff for babies. Right. Right. And me with two teenage daughters started looking saying, anybody want to tell me anything? (laughs) But it was but it was addressed to me. No, I just heard you crying (laughs) at night, sobbing over (laughs) scotch. (laughs) Like, there's got to be a baby in this house. Oh, it's funny. But you know somebody worked – I know you have little letters like, your little one should be six weeks old now, and you should be trying this and this. Like, somebody worked really hard to craft all this, except for that part where there's no baby. Kelly's been getting uh, e- emails that she can lose 70 pounds. If she lost 70 pounds, she wouldn't exist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, 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 we wouldn't be able to find her. <laughs> yeah. Probably yeah, my fault. Doesn't always work out. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I'm talking to three Americans, I think. So there's a whole GDPR discussion as well. Just this, you know, we are headed towards a path of more rights for the individual around their own data, regardless of how it was collected. Yeah, that's correct. And then that brings up yeah. all sorts of things that you have to worry about now when you are a data engineer or working mm. in the space. Like, Okay, what are the different compliance regulations that I have to keep, you know, so that I don't get a huge fine or lose, uh, you know, certification for this compliance, you know, and it's ex- exactly. Yeah, risk the business effectively. You are back to making business decisions again, whether you realize right. it or not. Yeah, and that even feeds into when you're developing machine learning models, the data that you use to train your models, right? If you look at GDPR, there are some implications for how the data can be used. And if somebody decides, I don't want my data to be a part of that, you know, how do you remove that out of right. the, the training models and everything else that you're doing? Yeah, I don't know how you could. Once you've trained a model that had data that someone then requests to be forgotten... Is it really even basically talking about retraining the whole model? Well, that's something that you tend to do anyway, is you're periodically retraining the model to improve it as new information arrives and things like that. And, you know, one way that people do this, one of the recommended things to do is when you train the model, you have a new version of the model. But uh, there's this idea Mm -hmm. of versioning the data that you use to train it as well. And so now you're keeping snapshots right. of, okay, what was the data that was used to train this model in version X? And you can go back and you can review it, uh, compare it with newer models and newer data that you're, you're training against. But yeah, I mean, you, you've got this notion, data scientists are used to the idea of needing to periodically retrain. Now, if you've made decisions that are impacted to some you know huge degree because you're now removing a bunch of data retraining the model now you've got some wildly different uh outcomes then you have to think about what that means from a business perspective too right Mm -hmm. 
right? And it even addresses potentially the validity of your model to begin with. If, And I think the other key thing to kind of keep in mind of that is, you know, when we train machine learning models, we're typically dealing with massive amounts of data to train this. So if we remove a handful of data points because, uh, you know, a few individuals say, I don't want my data used, uh, that shouldn't ultimately have that big of a deal because it's just one of so many different data points that are being used to train things. I mean, the corollary is also true. Those may be points you wanted eliminated anyway. Well, like, yeah, exactly. It's, it's hard and to know. part of when you are uh, when you are training a model, there's a stage called feature selection. And um, you know, I, mm-hmm. I've talked about features briefly before, but think of it as columns that you identify as being useful for scoring. And these tend to be numeric. And so one thing that you usually do while you're preparing is you normalize these numeric features. So if they contain values that are way out of scope, like like some huge outliers, um, something that can yeah. happen is if you don't normalize, the, the model might give undue preference to those features that contain a higher value. Oh, sure. If Jeff Bezos walks into a room, the average income, the average wealth of everyone exactly. is multi-millionaire. Exactly. And so if you don't <laughs> exactly. normalize that, well, then you're going to have something very skewed and not realistic anyway. And so yeah. by removing some data points, you know, hopefully if you are normalizing, um, then that's something that will have a little bit less of an impact. Yeah, I can. I, I, and it, and it's, I guess it's the big part of the job. Do you find when you're doing this data science role, are you spending a lot of time with the business owners or the decision makers in that context? Because it feels like you're making a ton of business related decisions while you work through this. Well, you have to. So think of it this way: say what you're, say you're working for, I don't know, a travel agency, and this travel agency wants to uh, have a a feature where they can predict the likelihood of a flight being delayed uh, based on where you're flying from, where you're flying to, what the weather forecast mm-hmm. is, you know, over the next 10 days. Um, at the time you decide to leave, you know, there are certain things that you have to know about the data. You know, part of this is data exploration. You need to understand the data. What are the features? What are the, the labels that you can use to, to determine the outcome? And so you need to understand, well, what are the business requirements? You know, what exactly are we trying to accomplish here with this prediction? What are the uh, key decision points that we need to make when making a prediction? You know, if you don't understand the, uh, the problem domain or the business drivers, then it becomes very difficult because now you've got a whole lot of information you're looking at. And you can go any number of ways from deciding, well, what type of prediction do I want to make? What sort of algorithm makes sense uh, with the data that I'm working with and things like that? So what are the outcomes? What am I going to do with this model once I've trained it? Where will it be used? That kind of thing. I'm curious, you guys, have you ever sat down with a customer, asked those questions, you know, what do you want to learn you know, what do you want this data to tell you? What kind of, you, what you just outlined there. And then they say something that is completely impossible. And it, j- it just shows that the customer doesn't really understand what the data is. Like find a cure for Yeezys? Uh, yeah, I have not countered that yet, but. <laughs> there is no cure. 
Yeah. And I would say I'm with Joel and I've never had a customer that uh, because that's really come up with that. But I think a lot of it is because it's it's more about the way that they do their business. And I think a lot of uh, organizations don't necessarily understand the data that they have or understand how that data could be used. Uh, but they do understand their business uh, and where they want to go with their business and the types of decisions they want to be able to make as a business. Uh, so it's then our job as the data engineers and data scientists to to get in and understand the data, understand what we have in front of us so that we can help them to figure out what is the best way to leverage the data that you have. Where, How do you tackle bias in data with a business owner, especially when you talk about their own data? that it Because that it, you're essentially poking against the prejudices of the company when you do that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, just trying to think of how best to answer that. Um, mm-hmm. So generally, the you know bias in the data would really be brought about if there's something in their application, something that's creating the data uh, that would skew it in one direction or another. Uh, so really, ultimately, we come down to how are you getting that data? And then I think as, right. as a data engineer, when we go through our data exploration process and we go through uh, the data wrangling that we typically do, which is uh, basically getting the data into a shape uh, when we have data coming from multiple places, we want to get that data so that we can actually use it together um, with all the structured, unstructured data, all that kind of yeah. stuff. Sure. Uh, I, 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 the example I, I would cite then is like, the only client we have is a smartphone client, and that just leaves out a chunk of the population, certainly worldwide, but even in North America alone. If you, if you, the only, the only way a customer can interact with you is via a smartphone, yeah, you cut off a chunk of market there. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I guess what, you know, from a business perspective, again, I think it comes down to their business model and, and who is their target audience. You know, if we're, as an organization, say we want to target millennials, um, maybe there's just an assumption made as we go through these things that you're going to have a cell phone. Uh, and if you don't, yes, we're giving up a segment of the market. Um, but you have to also look at limited budgets and, and advertising dollars and things that are going to go into this. So what is the what provides the biggest bang for your dollar? Yeah, I, I just hope that's articulated to business owners. Because often you talk to a business owner, it's like, well, what market do you want to go after here? And they go, all of it. Yeah, all of right. It. And you're like, listen, <laughs> you've already excluded some market by some basic points. Like they have internet access. You know, they have a smartphone. Like they, these are filters. Yeah. And I think it's important. I mean, that, that really comes back more to, you know, business at a higher level. And I think, you know, when I got my MBA, uh, one of the things that we would we would jokingly say within the group, when you look at marketing and advertising and, and where to focus your efforts as a business is it's basically never leave your love group, uh, <laughs> which essentially means like if you started your business focused on, you know, people that are 25 to 35 years of age, that's where you should stay, right? What, what, what you see a lot of times from a business perspective is when business decide they're going to greatly increase that scope, they get into areas where they don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now mm-hmm. you've, you've got a lot of wasted dollars. You've got a lot of wasted effort, usually for very little return. Right. Yeah. Well, the big thing is if you're going to expand the market, you should learn what you're doing. Exactly. But you also have to stay as an organization within your area of expertise. I mean, unless you're going to get into the business of going out and doing acquisitions and actually bringing in additional talent, that can cover the the areas that you don't know, uh, you're often better off, I think, as a business, staying focused on what you do well. Yeah. Well, I think part of this is just the understanding the full scope of cost. That's like, hey, we don't just get to go to a new market by changing a dial. It takes people, it takes expertise, it takes conversations. Like, it's going to be a while. 
you start absolutely. assessing that whole cost, maybe it doesn't mm. make sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even in addition to that, when you talk about going into new markets, is you have to you have to be able to understand that market. You have to understand mm-hmm. who your competition is, where things currently stand in that market, to figure out how much market share do you actually think you can capture, and what would that look like? Yeah, I think it's very reasonable. And and just scoping that whole thing. I also, you know, often when you talk about young businesses. They are, they grabbed what our market would respond to them. They may, it may not have been a coherent plan. You may be building the first real definitional models of what they even understand is a customer. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot of your questions are focused on the business side of things because this is something I know Kyle and I both have experienced this. You know, one, one of the things that we do is we train. Uh, Microsoft Cloud Solution Architects on how to effectively mm-hmm. conduct an architecture design session with a customer. And we do this by, yeah. yeah, we have a short presentation, but we role play as customers. And the the problem that we find over and over with technically minded people, as we all are, is you tend to go right into solving the problem and focusing on the technology that you use to do it where it's easy to overlook the business drivers and why are the you know why are they asking for these certain things what do i need to understand about the business sure. model in order to come up with a good plan and so you know right. the idea that you know you are focused on the business side of this i think shows your level of maturity too as far as thinking around these problems uh, i'm not saying you're old but we're all kind the of there. We're all kind of in the same boat <laughs> here. Getting, getting mighty close to it. We're, yeah, we're all kind of in the it. same <laughs> boat there. You know, we've got scars to prove kind of bad decisions. And the and boat is sailing off into the horizon. <laughs> 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 Only the power of Yeezys can save I us. I also... <laughs> right. Joel's hair is waving. But, you know, having written software for a long time, I was often hired in those early days to build a program the the company the company owner believed they needed and it almost never was the correct program like you always nobody ever hired you for business process engine re-engineering but the process of going through what it would take to build the software ended up being a business process re-engineering process like you you're scrutinizing workflows you're trying to understand what you could automate and so the question, you know, the, the demand of you at the beginning was almost never what you actually delivered. You had to rescope it. And I got to think every time you do one of these data science related projects, like their first question or request isn't the thing you'll end up doing. It's just the beginning of a conversation. Well, oftentimes it starts out as the, the seed of an idea where, okay, we want to right. AI all the things. Just just sprinkle on some AI. I'll, I'll order three uh, AIs medium rare from the menu, please. You know, right? I think it it just comes in a squirt bottle. You exactly. Spray it on AI everything. the shit out of this. <laughs> and so you know, yeah. the idea there is okay. We know we want to do AI, <laughs> but uh, no one really has a clue what that is. And yeah, it, you have to yeah. understand. And not only you, but the customer and it, it's part, part of it is guiding the customer to understand what it is they are trying to solve. Are they just trying to come up with some smart artificial intelligence to figure out problems to solve, you know, without actually having any problems to throw at it? And, and so obviously that's mm-hmm. not going to work. 
And it does come down to discovery. And you could think of it at a lesser scale being in software development where oftentimes uh, business owners or stakeholders don't really understand the technology enough to really be able to articulate what they're trying to find. And then so once you bring that problem up to sort of a, a more abstract level, you know, which is machine learning, um, it becomes even less clear to people oftentimes what they're trying to do. Yeah. And I, well, I, I, you know, every time I hear the phrase artificial intelligence, somebody asks me about it. I say, so when you say artificial intelligence, what do you mean? Because near as I can tell, artificial intelligence is an umbrella for technology that doesn't work. <laughs> as soon as it does work, it gets a new name, right? As soon as the vision stuff worked, it was vision systems. As soon as the you know the chat stuff worked, it was chatbots. If it's still called AI, <laughs> it's broken. <laughs> I would I would call it actual stupidity instead of artificial yes. intelligence. Sort of the opposite of artificial intelligence. Repeatable stupidity. <laughs> yeah. 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 Real stupidity. <laughs> but I mean, once in a while, you're across, you're you know, in a conversation with someone who's also very technical, and they use generic terms because they don't know you understand. And as soon as you press against that, they and they do dive into particularly, hey, I'm doing machine learning. It's like, okay, you know, you you know some things, but AI is a blanket term that lots of stuff has jumped on that's questionable. Yeah, and uh, and it's a it's bad like term. A sci-fi it doesn't term. mean much. It's a lot. Well, yeah. You know, I was, I, you reminded me, Joel, when you talked about the Terminator thing, the very first time artificial intelligence was used in public, like that they hit the, the normal, the human gestalt, it was 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. It was Hal. And he tried to kill everybody. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why we have a bad right. relationship with AI. <laughs> I blame Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> yeah, it's all Stanley Kubrick's fault. There He's already go. dead. We can't do anything about it. Yeah, and, and that was sort oh, of the man. thing, you know, when <laughs> as a developer, when I first uh, was thinking about, oh, okay, what is a machine learning model? What What is AI? What is this sorcery? You know, how do we make machines learn? Yeah. You know, one one alternative, if, if you were to ask me before I knew anything about machine learning, uh, you know, can you develop a model by which your software program can make decisions. And immediately you would start thinking down a path of, okay, well, I guess I need a bunch of if and switch statements uh, for logical branching. And if I can think up enough conditions to check, then I can come up with an output. You know, that's sort of at the base what you're doing. But when you're using an algorithm um, to, to do it, and you're using some sort of machine learning library, for instance, that has these algorithms that have these processes in place, well, it becomes a matter of just understanding your data, uh, looking at the things that it needs to look at, i.e. the features to make a decision, and uh, providing it a label, meaning what do I look at to make sure my prediction was right, and set it off to start training off that data. And so, you know, it's it's this whole mind shift of looking at the problem and looking at what tools are available that you could use where other people have been trying to solve these kinds of problems who are much smarter than I am. You know, what tools do they make available to do that? And so, 
you know, that was really the, the, the epiphany for me uh, when I started my path down machine learning is what it means and what tools are available. And Azure machine learning is one of those tools. And so, you know, Azure machine learning is a service within Azure. Um, and there are some SDKs that are part of it as well, but effectively it's a place in which you can conduct machine learning. Um, you can also have it as a uh, dependency within some external program to do machine learning, but you have what are called uh, experiments that you can do. So when you train a model, you're running experiments, you have some sort of output to see how well that experiment went. And then you have a model and you can register that model in Azure Machine Learning. Basically, you serialize it, it's, it's in binary format, and then you can easily access that model from other places. And then you can use it to deploy the model or operationalize. So that means I've got my trained model. I need to mm. be able to send some data to it and get a prediction. And you could use Azure Machine Learning to uh, deploy it to you know, Kubernetes clusters or to uh, Azure container instances as another example, where it basically provides now a web service that you can call, send data, and you get back your result. And so, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, it's it's one of the things that makes your job easier when you're especially a data scientist, but also a data engineer. You know, you want to be able to control the, the process of operationalizing a model. And then as a developer, you want to be able to use the model. You can use the service for that as well. Well, guys, we could go on talking about this forever. And so let's do that. How much time do you All have? Right. All right. <laughs> I've got time. <laughs> so, uh, hey, thanks. This has been uh, enlightening. And I do like the focus on the business case with this stuff. Uh, that's That's what we should be thinking about. Yeah, the tools are awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's like critically important, right? I think even as a lot of us learned as developers uh, early on, uh, so much of what we build um, in order to have a successful application, if we're building that for a client, is to understand what the customer is actually looking yeah. for, asking mm -hmm. the right questions. Um, and I think that's a critical skill for for developers and you know, data engineers, data scientists to have is how can we properly ask the questions of the business so that the solutions that we're putting together truly meet their needs because uh, I've had way too many customers that come in and say they want something but they don't really know what mm. they want and they don't understand what the capabilities are of the software and the systems that we could put together for them so really helping to kind of drive those questions that's part of what what Joel was talking about we do in the cloud workshops uh, to train the cloud solution architects at Microsoft yeah. uh, that, that's a big part of that is just learning how to ask the right questions awesome Joel Kyle thank you very much again all right thank you Carl thank you Richard you're welcome thank you very much and we will see you next time on .NET Rocks .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. 
online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a... Oh.